Welcome to That Creative Life. Hi, my name is Sarah Dietschy and I am your host. I talk with artists, YouTubers, CEOs, and everyone in between. I hope this podcast helps you live your best creative life. Enjoy. Yes. Okay. We're going to start this, this, this pod off. We're already talking about so much gear. I think Gary, we're both gearheads. Oh, I think major, that's major gearhead. I think that's obvious. And everyone who I've talked to who has built something in their life is there's obvious passion, whether it's tech, whether it's, you know, for me, I feel like it was guitar in the beginning days and you have this kind of like obsessive quality about things and that seems to be like a very common theme and so i'm just going to intro you real quick so you're the founder and managing partner of initialized capital your co-founder is alexis ohanian who is very uh an outspoken awesome individual co-founder of reddit um so initialize the little tagline is we fund tech companies before product fit so you have companies like coinbase instacart over 40 billion dollars in market value and you make YouTube videos. Oh yeah, I love so, YouTube. I, I love that so much. So that's why I'm so excited to chat with you. But going back to what I was just saying, what was that for you? What were you obsessed with as a kid that kind of was the, the first thing in your journey to then becoming, you know, working at Microsoft to building companies and to where you are now? I mean, I think I was so lucky in that um, my parents were really, just supportive of my obsession with computers from, you know, even when I was three or four, like I didn't learn to hold a pen and write things. I learned how to type on a keyboard and I learned how to use DOS. And, you know, I wrote my first story in WordStar. <laughs> if anyone remembers that, they probably don't because it was like the eighties. <laughs> so um, literally, you know, computers have been my life. And I like learned about the internet when I was 12 or 13. And it was clear to me, oh, that's going to be the future, um, this, the infinite book. I saw this uh, PBS documentary that you can find um, on YouTube now called The Machine That Changed the World. And from there, it just my whole life became actually about this machine that, you know, even in 1993, 1992, it was clear it was going to change the world. And then now, you know, I, I would have worked with computers for free. And uh, I think I under I even I underestimated what would happen with um, what's happening today with mm -hmm. technology and, and the value the creation. Thing. And it, it still seems like we are in the beginning somehow. Oh, yeah. You know, and that's the coolest thing is like we get to build some of it. I, yeah. mean, I know you studied double E and like just being a builder, mm -hmm. you know, now we get to actually create it, which is the, mm -hmm. ma the magic of it. I mean, I think 100%. of like percent making YouTube videos is actually, a, you know, really a powerful type of medium. You know, it's it's as powerful as writing code. And that's why I find you so fascinating because usually the, the VC community, they write blogs, they tweet, but that's kind of where it stops. And I think there's something with video that is... And it's a little boring. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not exactly the sexiest thing, right? I don't think the like the majority, like normal people are gonna sit there and read like a VC's blog. But it's been really cool to see your YouTube channel and some of your videos kind of, you know, pop out of that inner circle and kind of share stories and, and share these things that you wouldn't think would hit the mainstream, but it, there's really great lessons that you that you talk about. And one of the first videos that I saw of yours, and it was a great title, you crush it with the titles. It was the My $200 Million Mistake. 
And yeah. so it was when you were 23, didn't know anything about startups, and Peter Thiel, Peter Thiel offered you a huge equity stake in a company that he was building with some of your friends. So Yeah, which is IPOing this year, which is crazy, wow. finally, 17 wow, years wow. later. So <laughs> tell me a little bit about where you were in your life then. Graduated college, had a decent job at Microsoft, and you were like, nah, I'm going to stay here. Why, why did you say that? Oh, man. I mean... Well, so I grew up, um, you know, child of immigrants and honestly, like, actually it was like computers gave me everything that I have actually. And so that, that my, you know, being at Microsoft was the pinnacle, right? Getting a super solid, I mean, today getting a job at Google or Facebook. Yeah. I had health insurance <laughs> What's that and then like? what was cool. Oh yeah. Health, yeah. Health insurance <laughs> is very important. Actually, <laughs> What's funny is when you're that young, it actually doesn't matter as much. I guess. Yeah, now it I, matters a lot. Literally you, you triggered me when you said that, cause I just turned 26. So that was the moment that, oh, I have to figure out on my own. So I've, I've been spending the past month of just researching where to go. Cause you know, when you run your own business, it's not as simple as just, oh, getting on the health insurance of your employer. So, so yes, it is important, but that's been such a journey recently. Yeah. Well, thank goodness <laughs> for the affordable care act and yeah. universal health care for all coming soon. I hope Knock <laughs> we'll on see, wood. we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> Sorry. I, I interrupted you though. So parents were proud working at Microsoft, health insurance, hey -oh. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, working on Win uh, Windows Mobile was fun. So it was 2003. So uh, what's funny about technology is I actually became one of the people who could build um, database-backed websites very, very early. So I, I got to work at uh, the online agency that made the, Apple's, the first Apple e-commerce store. Wow. And so one of my mentors worked directly for Steve Jobs to make that, and they won like all sorts of awards for... The first time you could buy, a, you know, I think it was an iMac with a credit card on the internet. And then the funny thing about tech is that by 2003, all of the web-based companies were sort of dead. You know, the first web 1.0 was over and um, the hangover was pretty severe. Like I wanted to work at a startup in 2003 and they didn't really exist, even in the middle of Silicon Valley, like coming out of Stanford in 2003. So the next best thing I thought was like, okay, well, the web is dead which is stupid because <laughs> Facebook wasn't going to be invented for another year. Wow. <laughs> like if you wanted to invent Facebook, you would have invented it on the web right at that moment, right? And, um, but I mean, that's one of the crazy lessons that I've learned over and over again. Like every single moment in technology, it feels like it's over, right? This is the end of history. You know, everything that has been made will be made. And that's never been true. Like every generation, you know, I, uh, he was chatting with Mark Andreessen, who created the web browser, and he said the same thing when he made it. You know, when he came to Silicon Valley, like this is a guy who made the first web browser, right? And he came to Silicon Valley to start his company and thought, "Oh, it's over, right? I missed it. It was the PC revolution, the idea that you could have a computer on every desk." Yeah, given that context, so I could see how when you're in the middle of it and you look around, and you're the one with a stable job at a big company. I mean, that kind of makes sense, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I was happy. You know? Yeah, I, yeah. I was, had a great job and uh, got to go to the martini bar every after, after, every, after uh, every Friday night, you know? Yeah. And I yeah. had a, a brand new car and, you know, Stability. lived in a nice part of Seattle. It was stable and really, really nice. Mm -hmm. And so there's nothing wrong with that. I think what you're mentioning is pretty on par with what's happening now. Of course, it's a lot of external forces of shit hitting the fan in 
everywhere. But then we're seeing a lot of things in, in certain industries that seems like the end. And for sure in hospitality and travel, I mean, that just seems like it's over forever. And it's a little different than the internet because the internet is all encompassing. You know, there's, there's no way that you're not going to be able to Google something at any point in the next hundred years, I think. But how do you see some of those similarities with what's happening now and with some instability in some of these industries? And in the early 2000s, there, what that big tech bubble that burst what I'm sure that did feel like the end of the world. Oh yeah, totally. I guess the, the big lesson there, um, you know, why I said no to Peter Thiel was that they were working on something totally different that I had never heard about before. And the interesting realization is that if you only go by the thing that you read about um, or see a YouTube video about or whatever, you're actually only going to, you're not going to create new stuff. You're just going to like sort of chase what was happening like nine months ago. And then all the interesting stuff is basically... Uh, a bunch of creators making something in a room that nobody else had ever made before. And so what they were saying is, hey, we're going to go and uh, make software for the government and sell it like enterprise style, which is really, really hard, right? (laughs) And and I'm like, well, I haven't read anything about this, so I'm not going to do it. And then that's actually exactly the opposite. Like at 23, and what I do now working with really early founders all the time is to help them realize actually it's okay if it's not hot or you haven't read about it. In fact, that's what makes it even more likely to be the thing that goes and changes the world because nobody else is thinking about it. But that doesn't mean that the world doesn't need it, right? Yeah, and that's where that huge value is if you can get in it on the ground floor and you have those expertise that is useful in those in those industries. How do people find that? You know, maybe there's someone listening that says, dang, it's so cool to see maybe creators who started a YouTube channel, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, ahead of the curve, but, oh, how do I do that now? Or maybe they see all of these startup founders who have built something and now 10 years later, oh my gosh, 20 years later, oh my gosh, look at Facebook. How, how do you think those people, those founders, those creators find those unique, whether it's entire industries, whether it's, you know, a niche within a niche, how do you find that? If someone's like, I want that, I'm creative, I'm an engineer, how do I find the next thing? Oh man, it's so hard. I can only, I mean, I have a bunch of examples that are, I think, kind of interesting. I mean, Flexport, for instance, is a company that if you know anything about freight and trucking and, uh, you know, getting big boxes over from China to here, um, you've probably heard, heard of them, but generally nobody's heard of them. Uh, it's like a trillion dollar industry, actually. So, you know, when you go out and look at the ocean and see these, um, you know, giant boats filled with shipping containers, like Flexport is the thing that helps people actually buy those shipping containers and get the stuff over here. And uh, that founder figured out that this was a big problem because um, I think it was his brother who ran one of the biggest um, importers of medical hot tubs. So something like they were just <laughs> wow. crazy hustlers for trying to, you know, you know how you go on YouTube and you find all these videos about drop shipping and things like that. I think they were you basically that. You could be that. making I mean, $40,000 a month. Yeah. Drop and shipping. So, yeah, they, they basically figured out that through doing something very different and strange, like becoming the top of their industry through something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Ryan Peterson of Flexport realized, hey, there's no software over here. And we could actually, you know, people are actually using paper and pencil 
and fax machines and like emailing like Excel documents back and forth. Wow. And, you know, I, that's actually the most obvious thing you can do today is if you look at how the world still works, like today you can call a car with an Uber, you can get, a, you know, a place to stay with an Airbnb, like two clicks, right? Um, and, you know, everywhere in the world, there are people who go to their jobs and, you know, they go out to lunch, they take a photo of their lunch posted to Instagram, it takes two seconds, so easy. And then they go back to their work and they're like, oh, like, where's that file again? And then, oh, I, you know, what's the number? How do I, oh, let me call this person, right? <laughs> so, and like the whole world still actually operates like that. Like, look yeah. at, like, hospitals still work like this. Um, education, like universities still work like this. Like schools work like this. Uh, you know, everywhere you go, it, 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 there's no software in it. And so it's actually everywhere. Like the, the opportunities are actually everywhere. And then the harder part is just like, what, do, what are people actually into? Like, you know, sometimes it's their friends were into this thing and pulled them into it. Or I don't, I don't know what, right? But the, the weirder, the better, right? Like, you know, but how do you become the, the number one importer of medical hot tubs? That's about as obscure as you could get at some level. But Well, I mean, I think that's such a good example because if you're doing anything in the world, if you have a normal job or if you find yourself building maybe a somewhat normal business or a niche business like that, when you start going through the systems that were in place before you got there, you realize, oh, there's a lot of inefficiencies. And so many 10 million, even $100 million worth companies, I feel like, are just being weighted to be created because of those inefficiencies. Just like you said, if there's just one software program that you can build that every single person who ships from, you know, something from point A to point B uses, oh my gosh, that's, that's like printing money. Yeah. And we're you know? sitting in front of computers right now. We're like, if you just sat in front of the computer and like wrote, a, like, it doesn't even have to be an app. It could be a website. Yeah. And yeah. the website like goes like that. Like, mm -hmm. here's something that people want. And here's this, you know, something that people are going to pay for it. You just put them together. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's like better, cheaper, faster. Yeah. And that's I mean, that's why it's so exciting. And I think a lot of people see that and they say, OK, well, easy for you to say, Gary, maybe, you know, you know how to code or you have product manage experience. And can you explain like the no code movement that is happening in in this world that you think I think it will definitely obviously be a coexisting world of coders and non-coders, maybe designers who use these non-code tools, but it's still, I, I feel like every day I go on Twitter and I see a new article, no code movement, making, you know, making moves, like watch out world. But when you click on those links and you learn about some of the tools, some of them are interesting and helpful, but at the end of the day, there's still some of those missing links in between, okay, I have an idea, I might not know how to code, there's no way to make it if if I don't know how to code. But yeah, it seems totally. like there's some interesting tools being built in that yeah. space. Well, not everyone can code, but everyone can use a spreadsheet, right? And so I think that that's actually what's happening. Um, you know, 90%, like when I talk about like, you know, working for Steve Jobs, making the first Apple e-commerce store and making a database-backed website, 90% of that could actually be covered by instead of database, you have a spreadsheet. Right. It's just like rows and columns and that's it. And then when they say no code, what really actually powers it is being able to have things automatically happen. So if you get an email, if you have a website and uh, someone enters a form entry, it goes um, from that form entry into a spreadsheet. And then say you have a sales team, you want the sales team to do something with it. So you might 
take that spreadsheet where you know that person wanted something from you and then you connect Zapier to it, which is another website that you can use to connect to that spreadsheet. And so when that happens, it could send an email and this, you send an email to someone on your team. It's just it's like, connecting hey, you got to go do this thing now. Yeah. And so that's workflow. And then you don't it, the magic is you can do all of that without having to know how to code or st set up a server or maintain anything. Um, and so I think that that's really cool. And uh, it's something that actually anyone here watching, like if you know how to use a spreadsheet, you can fire up Airtable and, uh, you know, use Stacker on top of that and make web forms and like, you know, automate a bunch of stuff. You can run a whole business off of it without ever hiring an engineer, actually. Yeah, I mean, there's so many exciting tools out there. And especially what Apple has been low-key doing with shortcuts is really cool. Oh, and yeah. a lot of people don't even know that shortcuts exist on their phone. But there's so many things that you can automate just from the shortcuts app, the automation app. Um, that you know the thing I miss the most on shortcuts? What? There's no sh if you find this, you got to tell me. Okay. There used to be a shortcut to download YouTube videos onto your camera oh, roll. Oh, did they take that away? YouTube broke it. So, I mean, obviously, they don't they want did. you to download them. But yeah. as a creator, you need that. Like, yeah. you need it all the time. Yeah, yeah. Like, how do I, how do yeah, I get I use, content? Right? I use that 4K video downloader app. But it's, it's yeah, not yeah, on yeah. your mobile on your mobile yeah, device which you gotta is a do bummer. it on your computer yeah. which is annoying yeah but it's so cool to see people building the shortcuts even outside of uh you know just what apple offers but using zapier using all of these things there's if then then that or whatever that stands for um there's yeah, so yeah. many cool automation things that you can do and you mentioned Airtable, and i'm like obsessed with notion for the past six months I, i've literally built my entire life around notion and it's so cool to now have like relational databases that talk to each other. You can you can do a lot of different automations and calculations within those databases. It's fun to me because it kind of reminded me, I, I'm not a coder, but you know, I switched my double E to computer science. So I have three and I a half years of that. College, okay, so, amazing. Yeah. Only difference, you completed your degree. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know. I don't feel like I actually learned anything from the degree, actually. All of the coding I learned was just like on my own from yes. like the web and YouTube videos and stuff. Yeah, and I think that's what was missing for me. I got so burnt in college because I was expecting the practical stuff from college. And I was like, this is if this is what this is, I don't want anything of it. So I wish I did some more personal projects outside of it. Maybe it's me putting too much on college for saying they ruined it for me but you ruined it for me, guys. <laughs> but using Notion makes makes me feel like I'm using the side of my brain that was being used when I was coding, and that's why it's so fun for me. So I, I'm i thoroughly enjoying all of these tools that we have now. Um, yeah. And, and air, it's a air gateway drug is, into yes. actually coding. <laughs> and that's true. I mean, that is so true. Well, let's go back to you in college. What were those projects that kept you busy? And what is the value of college when you can do a lot of this on your own. Oh yeah, see that's the tricky thing that I now realize. Like I did end up going to Stanford and I didn't come from wealth or money or anything. I just, I, my parents couldn't afford the Princeton Review courses. So I went to the library and like did the 15 SATs directly out of it. I, you know, I was watching your video that you had to get the perfect ACT and I was like, oh, that was me. I had to deal with that. Um, yeah. But it did change my life. And that's the kind of crazy thing about, um, you know, colleges and credentials like 
I, I, the hard part is like society, there is a great sort in society. And that's sort of the scary thing. Like, um, I never would have met Peter Thiel. I never would have learned about startups or how startups get financed. Um, I never would have learned even that venture capital existed or how to raise a fund without like going to a place like that. And so for me, it's like, well, that still exists. Like these are sort of old world things. I'd like there to be a lot more things like that. That's where I think like 368 is really, really cool because that's what 368 is for creators. Like, I, you know, watching like, you know, Matisse Thibel going through 368 or you went through, I mean, all of these things are sort of uh, guilds almost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, I went through the Adobe Creative Residency, which yes, helped me the a Adobe lot. Creative, yeah, yeah that, that was really cool too. And like th the world actually needs a lot more of things like that that bring together people who are really excellent at what they do. And then they go off and do all of the other things. And, um, and so college is just one version of that, but that was actually the real, uh, value to going to Stanford. Like the, the classes were fine and I probably used not a crazy amount though. The humanities studying the humanities was very useful. Actually. <laughs> what was useful about that? What, what were some of the things that stuck with you even today? I remember taking a super intense, um, course at, uh, my, my freshman year because I knew I was going to be an engineer and it was called structured liberal education. Hmm. And I found out a bunch of other venture capitalists actually also went through that program who like ended up studying engineering. So interesting. And what you does studied that even basically mean? the beginning from the beginning to end of like basically human history. So starting with, you know, Greek, you know, Aristotle and Plato and brought you through. I mean, you studied the Bhagavad Gita. You studied just basically all of the different world religions and different philosophies up through Freud and postmodernism. And, you know, for me, being 18, I wanted to understand the world. And I thought, well, here's 4,000 years of people writing down what they think the world is about. <laughs> Let's um, start there. <laughs> yeah, that sounded like a pretty good place to start. And then yeah. the main conclusion, though, was like, actually, nobody knows what is going on. And that's actually OK. Like in the moment, I was really depressed because hmm. I'm like, oh, even Plato and Aristotle, they don't have it figured out, right? Freud didn't have it figured out. See, like, I feel Marx like people, depending out. on who you are, you do one of two things that either comforts you because you're not mm -hmm. alone or it freaks you out even more yeah. because so it initially if these people, out. yeah, if these people didn't have it figured out, what am I doing? Yeah. But then the, uh, at this point, like 20 years later, I realized that was a really important step to go through because now I realize it's all made up. Wow. But then the yeah. fun thing is you get to make it up. Like, and you're doing it right now, which is fun. I mean, that's, that's the beauty of being a human being. And just like, that's what we're put on, on this earth to do actually, mm -hmm. which I maybe is what Camus or Sartre said. So <laughs> no, I love that so much. And I don't think it's a coincidence that podcasts, even though they've been around for 10, 20, 30 years, that they are having this re resurgence because people want to hear just people tell stories and tell their story and remind you that you're not alone and people have gone through similar things and the struggles and the high points and everyone has their own story, but there, there's something, I, I find it comforting that, okay, even the most baller people at some point thought that they just wanted to give up or they wanted, they just felt so confused. I feel like with a, with a job that's so outwardly facing where people are giving you so many comments and so much feedback about you as a person, Oh yeah. I feel like I have to always remind myself that, that, okay, you don't have to have it figured out. I'm sure, you know, people have come before me and figured this out, but it kind of well, is a different beast. PR version. That's why other VCs, when they go out, it's like, 
the most polished version of themselves, right? right? And then I don't want, I don't know, life is too short for that, right? <laughs> well, so what, what made you start a YouTube channel? Here you are with your inventure, which is a very exciting world, lots of money, talking with founders, trying to build things, but at the same time, I feel like there is a desire to keep it, you know, a little close to your chest. Don't share everything. You know, you have secrets. You have, you're, you're making essentially value. You're building value off of having that unique advantage or that unique info that you have and not a lot of other people have. So why start a YouTube channel? And why yeah. share more? I mean, VC itself sort of started that way. It's like this cloistered, you know, not very diverse world that is basically money, right? Like, and then even me being a VC is actually a strange thing because like I started as an engineer, I didn't study finance, like I had no intention of doing any of that stuff. But what happened, the thing that changed my life was actually a guy named Paul Graham. So he was also an engineer and he wrote these books, you know, Hackers and Painters. And he wrote an essay that I remember where he said, you know, he didn't say in the essay, Gary, but it, it felt like that to me, reading his essays. Um, you weren't meant to have a job, right? You could go work at these big tech giants and they'll just like take advantage of you. Like they, they need you more than you need them. And uh, that really spoke to me. That helped me realize, oh, this is actually how the world works, right? Like the world wants you to be pacified. The, the world wants you to stay where you are. It, it wants to like commodify you into like a worker, right? Like into a resume, like to compress you down into like a single 140 character line, right? You know, those essays taught me, hey, I, I don't have to be that way. And then now realizing, so I actually met Casey Neistat. <laughs> so through Alexis, uh, you know, he came by the office and uh, I, I knew of him and it was really great to meet him. But then I saw what our interns, how our interns interacted with him, who they were, you know, college students, they were 20 and, um, they walked up to him like they were friends. And I was like, and that was sort of, and now like it's clearly what is happening today. Like that's why it's so powerful. It's it's a little weird though, obviously. I'm sure this happens to you on the street in New York City all the time. It's it like can get people weird, just walk up to you. But right? the majority of it is good. Cause I always say, I wouldn't even call it fame, but I say internet fame is the best kind because it's not, you're not a celebrity. You're not like your life isn't being affected by people quote unquote bothering you but there's legitimately people coming up to you whether it's in the streets or wherever you are being like i appreciate what you create oh, like yeah. that's oh that just actually gave me goosebumps yeah <laughs> like is cool. that is awesome you know there's weirdos now, now I want don't be a weirdo but yeah <laughs> yeah don't be a weirdo please 90 <laughs> percent of it is awesome though and so yeah i mean i i saw that and it's like I mean, on the flip side, it's so important to be able to tell your story and to have a direct, like, I love doing weekly vlogs today because I get to have like time with, I don't know, a thousand random strangers. I'm actually very early in my YouTube career. I feel like I've only been doing it for eight or nine months. I have the gear of someone who has been doing it Oh my it gosh, years, your but... gear game. And we, we kicked off this podcast talking about your setup and my setup. I am very impressed. Very impressed. Because I... Oh, coming from you, it means a lot. <laughs> no, of course. Because <laughs> I just got to the level of using my fancy camera, my fancy audio to not only record, but also to put it through Zoom. So now the person on the other end can see that too. I just arrived to that point. But the fact that you're already crushing that game is... Awesome. Oh man, I got my softbox. I got my. I love my, uh, it. 
I have my <laughs> sideline over here. Oh my so, gosh. Yeah, I got my my uh, visual interest. I got the full bouquet. This is like F1.2. So. Oh my gosh. I mean, it's you're basically a YouTuber. Yeah, Watch yeah, out, yeah. VC. Like, <laughs> who, who needs to be a venture capitalist? You'll be a full-blown YouTuber in no time. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's the other thing that's kind of interesting about YouTube is, like, a lot of the people who try and teach you about business, um, they're also trying to get you to, like, join their course. Like, no, yes. and there are people who are very legit who are doing that, but some of them are like, oh, my God, like, I don't really care about your Lambos, bro. Yes. I, Let's that, be real. That is such – I don't talk about it a lot because I don't want to yeah. – knock people who do that because on one side i think the internet is amazing and it's amazing that you can pay a hundred bucks 500 bucks for maybe that's an equivalent of like you know a year in college for something but so much of it is bs it's really hard to find those courses and find those programs that are actually legit that are actually not like hey i'm gonna teach you how to interview for a facebook job pay me a thousand dollars what? And it's like a Google yeah. Doc. Why are you paying? Don't do it. Yeah. I guess it's, and, and maybe that's one of the things that these platforms are doing, whether it's masterclass or teachable, maybe there is a level of curation that has come about because of that. But those people that teach you about business, but their only business is selling their audience courses is just the worst. I'm like, no, yeah, show me that you have success somewhere else and then you can make a course, you know? So yeah, in, in my back, in the background, I'm like, Look, I really care about people and I really want them to succeed. And it is magic when someone sits down in front of a computer and makes a business and has that business grow. And it doesn't have to be venture back. That's the thing. It's like, I believe in software. I believe in tech. Like tech changed my life. Tech changes lives for people who I know like every single day. And then I want like not a little bit more of it. I want a lot more of it. Like, you know, everyone should sort of know this. And so that's sort of like my broader goal. It's like what Paul Graham did with his essays, I want to do with yes. YouTube and have this like direct connection with people who are watching. Yes. Okay. So there was one Paul Graham blog post that just wrecked me. I think it was two years ago. And again, it was probably posted before I was even in this world. Um, but I think Tim Ferriss talked about it in one of his podcasts. And it's one of his most famous ones. And it's the manager versus maker schedule. Oh, totally. That blog post. I had never heard that idea put into words like that. And it literally just seemed like it added framework to my messy brain and why some things weren't working. Because this is a very creative job. Editing, filming, you know, anything that requires creative output, you need blocks of time for that. You know, if I have a phone call at 10 a.m. and a phone call at 1 p.m. I'm not going to be doing any productive creative work within that two to three hour framework between the calls. I'm just not because I'm oh, yeah. I have anxiety about the next phone call. I'm prepping for the first and I need at least 30 minutes to get into the zone to even edit a video that's going to take me five or six hours straight. Yeah, you got to so, you got to make space for that yeah, in your life. Exactly. So the way he just laid that out in that, hey, a manager schedule is broken up into 30 or hour increments and they're just they're go they just do it and every hour is filled with another meeting and that's their life creative people makers they need chunks of time they need four hour sprints where they can do that creative work whether they're coding or making a video and i was like oh my gosh this is so true 
This is amazing. He lives it too. I mean, I I worked for Paul Graham for a number of years and it was like, it's amazing to meet your mentors and and then to work for them. It's uh, unbelievable, honestly. Can we go through your history? Because it seems like you have just worked with under four, like some legends. So what was the the Apple website? So that was, was that your first thing out of college or was it Microsoft? Yeah, it's, uh, that was actually when I was, that I, I cold emailed um, when I was 17 to get my first programming job. And I just went on the web and I was looking for people who made websites that I was very impressed by. And they had made like, so you know, this was 1998. So if you remember, I mean, if you went back and Googled what websites looked like back then, they looked like gray backgrounds with like borders and then the blink tag and the under construction sign. So that was like what most websites (laughs) looked like. The under construction sign, yeah. And then there was this one agency called Adjacency run by um, Andrew Sather, who actually now works with me at Initialized. Um, He he was one of the first people to say, let's make a web page look like a real magazine. Like we'll have a full page bleed. We'll use... You know, JPEGs were new, like actually having an image that, you know, could look like a photo was a new thing. And um, he would make a full page bleed. And and he himself actually built that business off of cold, uh, cold mailing. It was like even before email, if in order to get people to even come on the Web, you had to cold mail people. Wow. And so he made like these. What? He sent like 40 um, cold mails to tell people about, tell brand managers and VP of marketing at like places like Land Rover and Power Bar and Specialized Mountain Bikes that the web was coming and you should pay attention to the internet and it was a mail. And so he, so he built his business on cold, cold mailing and then I got a job for them through cold emailing because I loved their websites. And then I was 17 and they were like, all right, come, come on. <laughs> and you know, we'll teach you how to write code and uh, make these websites. Wow. And so how long did you spend there? Oh, uh, it was like summers and weekends and I just like worked whenever I could. So. Wow. And that the Apple website, were you able like were you on that oh, team? I that didn't was... work on that. I got okay. to work on the specialized mountain bike website. Love and I it. got a and then at the end of that summer I got um a, a stump jumper, a full full like just awesome you know, oh, that's awesome. Suspension bike that I took on the trails. Wow. And got but injured on. That's what happens. I ride electric bikes all the time. My parents are always so nervous. Yeah. Like, Do you have the careful. new Van Moof yet? Or I don't. I just ride Super 73. Oh, that's yeah. Yeah. That's I'm like, I, I prefer get. not to pedal at all. Yes. <laughs> smart. Yeah. So after that, it was Microsoft. And then I ended up joining my uh, my friends who started Palantir. Palantir. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And then how long were you at Palantir? Uh, two years, and then I, you know, started reading Paul Graham's essays and deciding, shoot, I, I should apply. And I applied and got into Y Combinator in 2008 with a social network idea that we wanted to work on called Posterous. It's a blog platform, actually. And what and what so, year was that again? 2008. Okay. And, uh, so, so 2008, we were, uh, you're big building a blog to yeah, Tumblr. Tumblr. So why did Tumblr come out on top? Did they come out on top? Well, I mean, that's during that time. (laughs) That's a a good point. They definitely came on top versus us. Yeah. But um, I guess that's a good example of not allowing other people to sort of define who you are. Um, Because we were similar to Tumblr in that we were both a blog platform. But now in retrospect, we're actually more like Instagram. Because 
the iPhone was new. Everyone had you know, the iPhone and um, apps weren't a thing yet. Like the app store was new. People didn't really know how to make uh, apps yet. And so they would actually get their photos. The reason why we grew it to a top 200 site was that um, people wanted to get their photos onto their social networks. So I think like Facebook had less than 10 million users. Twitter had less than 10 million users. Um, and so people wanted to post photos and the apps didn't do a good job of it. And it was easier to take a bunch of photos, select a bunch, and then in photos app on iOS, just click share to email. And then we were the first ones to say, just email post at posturist.com. Oh. And that, that was because Flickr, you could do it with Flickr or any uh, of the other. I mean, things. on MySpace, I used PhotoBucket. Yeah, exactly. And there was like a secret password at photobucket.com, secret password at flickr.com because they couldn't figure out the security. And then for us, we were like, we're going to use the headers to figure out if it's really you. And then you can just use post at. And so we were the first. That was like our trick that we, we you know, you need some sort of sleight of hand to get people to use you. And that was our trick to, to build a social network. And uh, it's funny because when Instagram launched on the share page, today it's only Facebook, right? But when it launched, it was uh, Facebook, Twitter, Foursquare, and Posturus. And so we were actually one of them. And, um, and so this is like a really good example of like a near miss because that was actually why we were, we were being used. And when Instagram came out, our growth actually flatlined. <laughs> so, Interesting. So, which is crazy. So how long did it take to, cause I imagine, you know, this is your baby that you've built and I'm sure there's ups and downs, but how do you know it's over? Like, how do you know that that moment when Instagram came out, what wasn't just a pivot moment? Oh man, we didn't know for another six months. Um, I actually remember getting an email from one of our investors and he was like, oh, hey, you're, you're integrated in Instagram. What do you think of Instagram? And then it was actually Chris Saka, who's a really famous investor who invested in, you know, at Twitter and Uber and these yeah. other things. And before I could reply, my co-founder replies and he says, oh, Instagram, it sucks. <laughs> and I was like, no. And then our <laughs> investor replied, I'm very disappointed in you guys. And he never brought it up again. <laughs> um, and it's wow. just funny because like we didn't even know for like another six months. Like we just started looking at our Google Analytics and like it wasn't growing. Like we grew like 10x a year, two years in a row, and then suddenly it went flat. And, uh, and then you had to pivot, right? And then me and my co-founder didn't agree on what to pivot on. And that's when I went to work at Y Combinator. I was just crazy burnt out. Um, but that's why now, like when I make my videos, I, I really want to sort of find the people, like we had a shot, like we could, I mean, it's ridiculous because like hundreds of people in Silicon Valley, like a hundred different startups could have made Instagram. And like, it's ridiculous to even lay claim to that you that you could have but we were like we could have been a contender right and and so now like as an investor i find that my whole job is like find the people who could make the next instagram and then make them it like you've got to be it like this is what you need to do like i didn't hire well i was a terrible manager i you know yeah i i i screwed it up right and so how do i prevent other people from stepping in the same things that i did and people do this all the time right like nine out of ten 90 if, if you have like 100 startups in a room like 90 of them are going to fail right which is like really really long odds but you know if i can sit down with people and help them like at, you know, most people die because of some sort of unforced error right so good investors can actually help people um 
avoid death, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and there's so much serendipity. There's so much, th there's so many things you have to get right to be that app, to be that website that gets it right. It's almost like you, you have to be in a state where you're comfortable of just like failing onto the next, failing onto the next until you hit that thing. And sometimes maybe people get lucky and that it's their first venture. Yeah. That, that, that's that. Um, but I think that's why a lot of VCs say, okay, of course the idea is important, but what about the actual founder? What about oh, yeah. the actual person who's steering the ship? But I, I, I truly feel like the new normal is going to be tech co-founder and influencer co-founder. And oh, yeah, there's, I can see that. there's, there's so many people that have an audience, have influence, have a lot of skills when it comes to uh, maybe not traditional product design and you know understanding the exact life cycle of a product, but they can get there if they understand Dude, how to if you build are anything. A YouTube creator, you have to be an incredible empathetic person to understand mm -hmm. your audience to make something for them, and, and, that, and that's, that's, and that's just the truth. And that's product. Yeah, and that that's actually product. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly what product is. What do you see, and this is like a very selfish question too, since, you know, behind the scenes on YouTube, I'm building my own thing with um, my friend Adam, a creative software. What is the, the biggest hurdle that you think this new dynamic duo is going to encounter? Because it is a little not normal. It's a little new. Essentially, you're saying, oh, this person also has another job, another very public facing job. So so what do you think is going to be some of the, the good and some of the bad that's going to come from yeah. that? I mean, there are lots of, I, you know, I think about Casey and, you know, and Beam, right? And mm -hmm. that, I mean, I think that was one of the best possible situations where, you know, I. I think that from the outside anyway, it looked like they had an, a great sort of connection between like the the you know, product and tech team and Casey and that it really worked well together. And that's sort of the model to me at some level is um, when it works, you know, can it work that way? You know, Mr. Beast is doing fascinating things with with apps today and he's super smart. And I actually met him through my friend Blake Robbins and I think that he's onto something really big there or even what um, David Dobrik's doing with um, disposal camera. I mean, that's really, really cool to see. And then whether or not it, uh, it works will actually be based on is there that symbiosis, right? Like, can the creator understand the process of building, creating, building a team, hiring people, like managing, like even getting in the bug database? I mean, that's when you know you're really doing the work when you're like sitting in the bug database arguing whether this <laughs> should be fixed in this release or the next release right and you know you're probably doing it now so. yeah i'm i'm already there we've completely because you know the world is pretty overwhelming right now but we've gotten to a place where we've stripped everything away and okay it's cool to have all of these 12 half-baked features but let's literally strip everything down and go feature by feature start with yeah. the most important thing that we've been interviewing people and there's a consensus okay this is obviously the most important thing so we'll start there get that perfect move on to the next one and it's totally. it's helped us to just break it down and because it's it all seems so big when you're in it it seems oh, yeah, scary it it's hard and you start you start really questioning yourself like oh my god are we building the right thing what is going on those are the right questions though right and then the way you answer it is like put it in front of a user and they'll just, you know the hardest part though is like sitting in front of a user and trying to get them to tell you 
what they really think because everyone's right. so polite actually yeah so me when i i go on twitter all the time you know this um i will tweet notion like twice a day hey fix this hey here's an idea hey do and they're a really good example of people they're always on anywhere and they respond really quickly they make you feel heard so i think when it comes to customer service that's huge is just making the user feel heard you know there's this great um tweet from the founder of zoom from last year before they ipo'd where he's in the thread just like getting you know oh what version of windows were you using <laughs> like he's literally doing it on Twitter. I love that. It's like, of course it's a hundred billion dollar company, yeah. right? Like he, they built something, they built a cult culture and like a whole organization that's built around this being awesome. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that. When Initialize says we fund tech companies before product market fit, that's y'all's ethos or not ethos. Is that the right word? Y'all's yeah, maybe tagline. Mantra, I don't know. Mantra. Yeah, that's tagline. Yeah. There you go. I've always found it so fascinating. Seed investing or anything around that is okay before there is a fully formed product, you know your customers. And it seems like there's a lot of risk with that. You're investing in something that you don't quite know has a fit out there in the world. So why in and what is the biggest challenge with that? I guess like our cheat code is like, because we built this stuff, when we look at other people's products, it's like, oh, that is well-made. You know, there's this great um, thing that Steve Jobs talked about once where, you know, how a cabinet maker can actually tell if another cabinet maker is good. They don't look at the front. Anyone can look at the front and say like, oh, it looks nice. What a cabinet maker does is turn it around to the back. And then if you, if that part is finished, then you know that you're, you know, that was made by someone who cares, who's like capable and smart. And, you know, that's how you know. So that's sort of our cheat code. I mean, when I met Apoorva Mehta who created Instacart, he was just like one or two people starting out. And I was one of the first hundred people to try Instacart. Wow. So and at that uh, point, do they have a product that's actually out in the world or is everyone yeah. only like doing small betas here and there or what yeah, stage he was of the a product friend of a friend, it? I guess. So, you know, someone, a friend of mine was like, you got to try this. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And then they wanted to get into Y Combinator and I was a partner there and I could have, I, I, and he emailed everyone. I was the one who replied and I said, oh, it'd be almost impossible to get you in right now. And it was like a 10 week program, five weeks were over. And he was like, oh, so you're saying there's a chance, which is like <laughs> such a great, and it's like, man, a founder is really like that. Cause you know, founders get like said no to all of the time. And he's like, oh, that that's my in. So then he, he actually, you know, used his own app. He had a driver app and he had like a working like app that you could you know buy stuff from. He actually had thousands of products in the thing. He had hired two people off of Craigslist in Mountain View, California. And he and someone knocks on my door at the office and he's like, hey, delivery for Gary Tan. And it's a six pack of beer. And I was like, oh, this is crazy. And I downloaded the app and it was, you know, totally working. It was ready to go. And like we it was 2012. So we were seeing tons of people trying to pitch like Uber was out as an idea, like the idea that you could uh, have a large workforce being totally deployed by the smartphone. That was a new idea that wasn't quite proven, but it was very interesting. And so I was reading thousands of YC applications for people trying to do it. But here is someone who actually did it and sent me a six pack of beer. So I was like, oh, this is like basic <laughs> intelligence test. I love that so much. And there's always those stories of the person just taking that extra step in a world where people are doing the bare minimum. If you can take that extra step, you're going to stand out. 
And that's yeah. what that sounds like. It's hard to extrapolate, right? I mean, the hard part is like you have to have the right idea and the right need at the right time. And the reason why a lot of people didn't fund Instacart was Webvan. You know, there were people who said, oh, Webvan, that was uh, a big colossal failure from the first boom where they had warehouses and, you know, venture capitalists. And what's like, different? Lost the timing. A ton of money. Yeah. The difference is like 80% of people who could, you know, who could be drivers had smartphones mm -hmm. in 2012. And that was like the moment for that idea, actually. Right. Timing. So important. That product yeah. market fit. So um, that's why the creator thing is happening now. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Hello. Which is really cool. Of course, you know, I make podcasts, but also I listen to them all the time. So I listen to uh, Jason Calacanakis. Is that how you say his Calacanis, last? yes. Calacanis. I don't even, yes. I should know complicated last names. He's I listen hilarious. to his podcast all the time. I he's He's a hoot and a half on Twitter. But he had a really interesting podcast with the uh, Figma co-founder recently. He said some things that I'm, I'm glad I'm talking to you because maybe you can share some insight on it where essentially Figma kind of had five years of stealth mode where oh, yeah. they were able to just build, 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 build. You look up now and they're valued at over, you know, a hundred million dollars. It's a huge company. They have, they've raised so much money. They obviously have a product that real people use. I, when I get thrown on, you know, product Zooms all the time, they'll send me a Figma link for Twitter feature or something. So I see it in, in real life, but it seems like they really had a lot of time to just figure out their product. So when it comes to raising money, I imagine the the founders who are reaching out or vice versa, I feel like it's a relationship where the founders also have to be careful about who they're raising from as well, because I'm sure people's expectations are completely different from one VC firm to the other. Maybe you can share how Initialize does it. And then what is maybe the consensus in the industry? How often does that happen where a VC company, a VC firm will support a company for years and years and years before they show any hope of maybe that perfect product market fit or before they actually start making money? Because it, it really, hearing his story was interesting because I, I felt like we've entered this mode of they need to see that you're making money pretty quickly now. But it sounds like they had a lot of time to figure it out and they had a lot of money to, to figure it out. What kind of company does it take to be that? The thing that's interesting today is that there's really two types of startups. Um, and what Silicon Valley classically has been really good at funding is the pure software startup, kind of like Figma. Um, and then it's learning how to fund the Ubers and Airbnbs and all of the other sort of, you know, full stack startup. And if you're a full stack startup, you touch something in the real economy, like Instacart, like that's all operations, right? You have the software piece. The software piece almost is the easier part. The harder part is like, how do you nail operations and marketing and like actually make enough money to make it a really good profitable business? Like Instacart was really smart because when all of their competitors out there were um, actually, you know, competing, um, they wanted to make the graphs look up and to the right. So they kept launching more cities. And Instacart, instead of launching new, new cities, they said, we're just going to be profitable in San Francisco. And then that's why they won, actually. So that's a whole different, that's not what you asked, but that is like sort of, you know, for most startups, you have to sort of figure out, like, am I something that touches the real economy? And then at that point, it's like transaction and margins and operations. Um, and then what's funny is like uh, finance will actually value that less. So a dollar over here is worth less than a dollar over here because 
you know, when you buy a hundred bucks worth of groceries, like Instacart gets like, you know, a single digit percentage of it. Right. Whereas like when you buy a Figma subscription, like all of it goes to Figma. So, which makes sense. Right. Um, and so that's why so people love software, right? It's like owning Google or, um, you know, Microsoft, Microsoft is the canonical example. It's like they get to charge rent on every single computer that's not a Mac, right? Or Apple, you know, Apple in their own way, like charges hardware tax instead, right? They give away the operating system for free. So that's like one of the really interesting things. Like there's really two types of startups, like, you know, stuff that touches the real world and then pure software. And then Figma, um, they were sort of chasing Adobe, right? Adobe, you yeah. knew was a very valuable company, period. And then- And you can look uh, at the market that they have and yeah. look at that like, oh, wow, wait, there is a lot of potential. Yeah. And in a way, like it was actually very understandable because uh, I still use Photoshop actually, so I'm dating myself, but- <laughs> No, same. And so, um, but it was kind of an obvious thing to say, well, the Photoshop for the web is going to be a thing and you have to rewrite it from scratch in order for it to be collaborative, actually. Um, and so that's going back to platform shift. I mean, the reason why Posturus could exist in 2008, when, whereas it wouldn't have existed in 2003 or 2004, was the iPhone, right? People wanted to email photos. Like anytime there's a change in the technology platform, then there's actually an opportunity. And so Figma was really, really smart and they probably did it right at the right time. Like you have, to, it takes like three or four years to build really good software actually. So sometimes these things take a while and then that's where picking the right investor actually matters a lot. Like if you find people who've been around for a long time and have helped other people like, you know, when people are looking for investors, that's the probably one of the more important things. Like what else have they funded? Because, um, that will help you hire better engineers and designers and product people. Um, that'll let you raise better money from the next round. Like, un unfortunately, like there aren't that many stamps on the forehead for to, yeah, I guess to bring the conversation back around. It's like what Stanford was for some people in their careers. It's like investors are that for startups. And I'm not saying that's fair or right. It's just like in a world of finite capital and finite attention, like, that these are sort of the things you have to think about when you when you're trying to put something together and so figma had incredible investors who were very patient and they had a, a thesis that they could rally around that like seemed inevitable they just had to build it um and not everyone has that luxury actually like um it's it's hard right like but then again i'm saying that it's inevitable and like was obvious but you can only say that in hindsight in the moment is probably one of those other pitches that was like, oh yeah, they're gonna make Photoshop for the web. Like lots of people are trying that. I mean, that's that's why this job is so hard. It's like pretty <laughs> insane, honestly. How much runway do the startups that you guys invest in have? Is that unique yeah, to, that's a great question. to each of the startups? So the good thing is, I mean, if you have really good investors, they'll actually help you make the decision. And so, you know, typically people try and go like, two years if it's fast or you know they can stretch it to three or five we have some companies in the portfolio that have four or five years of runway and more traditional vcs would be like come on guys i have a clock like i gotta return this money or something but for us it's like oh you know those are teams that are working on really technically difficult things and it's like it's actually good that they if they took five years to make something that nobody else has like the next best competitor is five years behind at that point. And, you know, um, going back to actually one of the more important things when it comes to startups, like that's a moat, right? Like, you know, in if there's infinite money and then infinite competition, 
then having a moat, like having a five-year head start on everyone else, that's really, really powerful. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's what makes you unique as you know a managing partner at a, v- a VC company, that you have that perspective of what it means to be a product manager, an engineer. You aren't just a, you know, kind of a finance dude. Yeah, I hopefully, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> have you? I rely on my community to keep me real that way, right? <laughs> like the, the thing is, money changes people, and I've seen it right. change people I know, and you know, I. It's one of the things I'm very scared of, actually. That's interesting. Is there something that you proactively do that kind of guards you from that of like, obviously you're going to be making bank. You probably are compared to the the rest of the world. But is there yeah. something that this is probably That's like the most question. niche question, but if no, it's on your yeah. brain, you know, I'm sure I'm sure you're thinking of it. I try and surround myself with people who um, will call me on my BS. Yeah. Can't <laughs> just have yes men. Thing. Right. That's the scariest thing to me. Um, I actually talk about it a lot, a decent amount on my YouTube channel about, um, you know, founder, how, how should ma- founders actually manage like their own position as a manager, right? Like how do you make it safe for people to come to you and say, hey, that's effed up. Like th- there's something wrong over here, right? And um, I, I actually struggle with it a lot. I mean, uh, Steve Jobs, for instance, is a very fascinating character to, for me. Um, in a recent episode, we talked about how, do you remember when uh, Mobile Me came out, he actually came out and took the whole team and sat them down in an auditorium and then asked them what Mobile Me was, sorry, this was not Mobile Me, it was, uh, yes, it was Mobile Me before iCloud. This was the product before iCloud. They said, why doesn't it do what you said it was supposed to do? And then they, he took the man, the head manager of that whole team and fired them publicly. And he was like, you should be embarrassed. Like you should, you have disgraced us. You've disgraced Apple. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, like this is Steve Jobs, right? This is the guy who like made the Mac. Like this is the guy who made the iPhone, right? And is that necessary? And m- my hope is that it's not, right? right. But, um, but it depends, right? I'm gonna and, have to um, look that up on YouTube after. I don't recall that at all, dang. Yeah, it's nuts. And then I, I think that that's the hardest thing about um, like privilege, about power. You know, it's easy to forget, right? I mean, I think that all people who work in tech, like we are all really, really privileged because um, what, the, what Wall Street is saying now, if you look at um, how companies are being valued by uh, you know, Wall Street, it's actually saying that some of these com- companies, like companies we've all heard of, right? Like Kroger or like even Walmart or different, I mean, why are the multiples so low? Why are the companies like valued so, you know, they're just not valued very much or like GM versus uh, Tesla. Like, why is that happening? Well, that's the street actually saying that if you don't have technology as a key part of what your business is, you might not have future cash flows. Like Mm. you might not have a business in 20 years. Wow. And that's, and there's like risk, right? Like there are people who talk about holding on to incumbent businesses is actually possibly like taking long-term risk because the funny thing about finance that I had to learn is um, it's not about how you're doing now. You're actually buying future cash flow. And then this goes back to why um, creators are so important now because Facebook and Google have this thing called uh, their ad auctions, which is actually really subtle and really important because if, um, you know, if you're Asus or you're Rode and you want that incremental customer over Acer or I don't know, whatever else, right? You actually have to pay 
Facebook and Google attacks. Like there's actually an auction. There's a bidding process. How these businesses, all businesses end up working is like, in order to grow, you're willing to pay up to your gross margin, up to how much it costs you to make the dang thing. And so what the auction means is like all of that extra money goes to Facebook and Google because wow. there's infinite competition and there's infinite capital. So everyone can do everything. And so shoot, like that's why Facebook and Google, I, I remember in 2003 when I was uh, graduating from Stanford, they wanted me to come uh, do a PM interview. And I was like, I love Google. I use it all the time, but how are they ever going to make money? And the reality today in 2020 is like, how is any other company going to make money? Which is wow. the craziest yeah. inversion. And it's it's them having the the foresight to say, hey, we are going to be one of the five toll booths of the internet. And we're going to take that toll, that tax every time someone wants, you know, a piece of our attention. And that's essentially who everyone is, whether it's Amazon, Google, Facebook, yeah. YouTube. And but then we have our YouTube accounts <laughs> and the YouTube accounts are ours. Right? Yeah, hopefully. I mean, yeah, I know, so, right? sometimes they just disappear into the ether. That or like people get sick of doing it and then they burn out, which is I'm also scared of. But, yeah. you know, if you have any tips on how to avoid burnout, that would yeah. be. Oh, I'm yes. very early in my YouTube career. So yes. I'm like, uh, not to turn the, t the, the tables <laughs> the, on you, the but I'm like, tables. how do I keep doing this? <laughs> yeah, I think burnout is something that is so, it's like everyone will have it at some point. If you make content, if you have a job that has to do with people telling you their opinion on you every single day, I think it's inevitable. Um, but I think people, I mean, how I avoided it early on, and it really happened to me in a big way after you know my biggest bump from the Casey Neistat video, was I wasn't doing the videos I wanted to do. I was doing daily vlogging because that's what Casey told me to do. Daily vlog, daily vlog got to post five times a week, you know, and everyone was daily vlogging. And I had to take, I kind of had to sit back. And when they weren't even doing that well, and it wasn't fulfilling for me, that was a good opportunity where I was like, okay, you got to pivot. You got to bring the quantity down. Don't feel like you're held to a schedule and just make what you want to make Put it in the container of what will do well on YouTube. Don't forget that you're trying to make a job out of this. You can't you can't necessarily be like, I'm just going to make what I want to make and then not worry about thumbnails, not worry about titles, not worry about your audience because they're obviously the reason that you're doing this. So it was it was one of those things where I'm grateful I took that pivot and kind of went back to how I started and just talking about the tech I'm interested in and the cameras and the laptops and adding my story to it. And, and hopefully people will come to each video because they care about me, not because, okay, well, I don't care about this piece of tech, so I'm going to wait until something's interesting. I think that's the bigger challenge is making videos that are niche enough, but at the same time, your audience, everyone who subscribes, each video you post is going to be for that that subscriber, which is a hard balance to keep. But once I found that cadence and I was okay with the videos I was making, that was a good first step and not just feeling a terrible. Yeah. <laughs> but the consistency is hard, right? Oh, it's so hard, yeah. We I'm, got other I'm struggling things going with on. Once a week. Yeah. I mean, I think the best thing that I did, now I like to be a little bit more consistent, but still to this day I'm not on a strict schedule, is just like don't be on a strict schedule. I know that's probably the opposite of what everyone says. Um, David Dobrik posted Monday, Wednesday, Friday. He had this, you know, 
crazy growth. But I think where YouTube is at now, if you just have a good thumbnail and title after maybe not posting for three weeks, you're back to where you started. That's actually where I'm grateful for the algorithm because that consistency, I don't think is as important. Yeah, I'm curious to see if we can make a sort of tech startup VC YouTube. There are a few a few of us out there, but I'd love for there to be a lot more. Yeah, and yeah. If I that mean, can create the... more startups, then exactly that would be awesome. more value for the world, the better. I I'm hopping around a lot, so oh, apologies. No but something I did want to go back to is those two years at Palantir. Um, oh, yeah. You you said you were even though you declined that initial offer, you were still employee number ten, so you were still hitting the ground running with that that OG team and what was your main role there was it product manager was it what was it and I'm, I'm sure that was oh, it was a lot like being a startup founder so I had to you know put together the, f the first product roadmaps the process the bug database um, I realize now the bug database is really important to product anyway and then hired the first you know hired the first team members you know built the front end so I I I really like places which let me just wear all the hats. And this is why like, I love video because it's like, you, I just you had, have to wear I just all had the hats. my second kid. Yeah. Oh, congrats. And I wanted to learn about, I, I just needed some, I couldn't code anymore because you need like 12 hours of straight, like being able to do it. And so I needed some sort of outlet. And so learning about watching your channel and, you know, learning about how to put all of this stuff together, that was just like the way I kept my brain turned on, I guess. Um, but yeah, I mean, the the most fun thing about being an early employee at a startup is that there aren't any rules. Like you're just making it up as you go. And I kind of really like that. Um, every uh, startup has, every business has three phases. Um, the commando phase where people are sort of like parachuting in and uh, trying to take, I mean, but you can't hold on to the territory, right? Like the founders are, tend to be commandos. And then at some point, like it shifts into, oh, you need to like manage an army. Actually, that's where you have to be a general. And then after you've won and you IPO'd or sold the company or whatever, then it's the police. Right. And then the interesting thing is like most people who work in knowledge work, like they're actually in places that are more like the police. Like you need someone to go and like keep the system running, but you don't get to be a commando. You don't get to be you know, running around doing new things all the time. And so I think that's why I always really was drawn to more risk and like the earlier stuff. Because, you know, there are people watching this now who part of it is like, if you're happy and like doing what you're doing, like don't change. Right. Like there is this idea that like it's sexier and more fun to be earlier. For me, it's like I actually worked in uh, in these places that are much later and I like was dying, actually. <laughs> like I needed that martini on, yeah, on Friday yeah, night because exactly. it was like I was crying because I couldn't do any. I couldn't like affect the world at all. Right. Right. And right. So. People will self-select is the thing. Like, I, I do think that it's a little dangerous. This is another success porn sort of thing that's scary for startup. For Like, I'm probably in danger of doing it myself, which is like, look, startups are not for everyone. Right. And they're really brutal and hard, right? Mm -hmm. As you're, I'm sure you're, like, in the middle yeah. of, you know? So. Well, as a avid consumer of the content, as well as a creator... I love movies of or documentaries of these founders and the whole startup story. And even though it's a slightly cheesy movie, I love the movie The Intern with Anne Hathaway. You know, so I'm like, my expectation is like, all right, already a year in, we're going to have our dope space in Brooklyn where I'm going to be writing my Super 73 around the office saying what's up to people. You know, you, you kind of 
dream about this ideal scenario, not it being 11 p.m. and trying to learn Jira to to learn how to read the bug reports, you know? Yeah, yeah um, totally. <laughs> so, th- you they know. They don't put that in the movie. They don't put that in the movie. I haven't worn my freaking fancy jacket in so long, you know, with Corona, too. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. I kind of miss some of the, the conferences and the, the more... I, those are fun. The more fun parts of of this world, um, but there's a lot of stuff that people don't tell you about. But going back to that, being at the beginning of the product, what makes that perfect product manager? Because people say that very like product manager. Okay, you manage the product, you build timelines, but what did that look like for you there? Oh yeah, that's a great question. I mean, that, that's that's the fun part, but also the really hard part because here's this thing that the world needs. And uh, who, you know, the more specific you are about the person, the better. And then what is their problem? What is the problem we're trying to solve? And then you have to sort of distill that into basically features like, you know, here's this screen that goes into this screen that goes into this screen. But what if this happens? So that's like the, the feature level. And then you've got to sort of map that to what do the users actually want? And then you also have this other thing. It's kind of like a jigsaw puzzle. It's like, how do you actually fit all these things in? Because then you have a finite number of engineers who can do like only so much in a couple of weeks. So you're like, okay, how do we stage it so that this stuff happens and then this works and then we can do that. And then the next thing, um, that's really, you know, the simplest way I could explain what a product manager does day to day. And, uh, if you zoom out, what that means is you're helping manage people, if not, you know, hire, you know, sometimes you're hiring them. Sometimes you're you know, doing a lot of stuff there. Um, you're also having to talk to the user because you're like, oh, does this actually work? Like you have to be the advocate for it because the engineer like sometimes doesn't even talk to the user. So, And then um, you, and you then, go down the rabbit hole of the engineer working on something for weeks that you actually don't even need or you don't need to change. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, making yeah. sure everyone's that, talking happen. to each other. Yeah, that'll happen because everyone's like lives in their own little bubble. Mm-hmm. So that's where empathy and like actually that's where like product and being a creator is like, like they're not... Mechanically, they're very different businesses, but like your mindset is actually basically the same because, mm-hmm. you know, when you make a video, you're like, what do people, you know, where are people, are, where are they mm-hmm. in their life? Exactly. And like, what do they need to hear right now? Yeah. Um, or what would they like to hear? And what do I think they need to hear? Yeah. How do I help them? And oh, that video idea you had two months ago might be a little insensitive right now. Okay, so oh, yeah. what do we, you know, it, it, the is, hardest one. it is kind of a- uh, Don't get canceled. Everyone, I mean, yes. it's so easy to get canceled it's, these days. It's, so it's very easy, yeah. So there's there's a lot of things that are, I, I, I think also with product managing, you said it well where it's not just managing people and talking to the people within your company, but you are talking to users so often, even when you don't have a product, you you have to make a point to just always talk to people because they might have a different experience than you. I think that's my biggest learning experience is, well, I'm the end all be all. I'm the example of the customer of this product we're building. So all you gotta do is talk to me. But oh wait, no, you start to have conversations with other people and you're like, oh, that's a good point. I never thought about that. So, I mean, that's huge. Yeah. I mean, it's the craziest thing to watch people use the thing you designed and they'll never do it the way that you thought. It'll just blow your mind, actually. Yeah. No, I love it. Well, Gary, wrapping things up, anything else you want to put into the ether, into the world? This was such an amazing conversation. We'll have to do a part two and three eventually. That would be fun. Yes. Let's. Yes. Yes. Where, um, and where can people find you? 
Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm just Gary Tan, G-A-R-R-Y-T-A-N, on all the platforms. So Twitter, Instagram, and on YouTube. And my... Uh, my DMs are actually open on Instagram, which is an interesting experiment. Ooh, but that's my that like VC version. Uh, that's my VC version of talking to my users. I actually. love it. And it actually helps me a lot on the on the content side. Awesome. Because things that I think are obvious, it's like, oh well, actually no. Like people really need to hear this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How has that been? Are you having like long conversations with people? Like, are they asking yeah, you yeah, questions about intense. their companies and stuff? Oh, definitely. Yeah, learning a lot. I mean. That's the, you know, starting a startup is so hard. That's the thing. And um, I think that's the danger with like being too focused on like VCs are all in their PR world. Like everything is heavily processed and like perfect. And my whole thing is like, I don't have an editor. I just like put out whatever I think is actually valuable. And then I hope people just, you know, I'm not perfect. Like I, I'm very far from perfect. In fact, my imperfection is what allows me to do my job better. Mm, I love that. Because it's like, here's a thousand, here's a thousand ways I screwed up. Like, I don't want you to screw up in any of these ways, actually. <laughs> yeah. No, and that, that makes for a great story. And it has yeah. been a lot of fun. It's cool to see, you know, the fact that it's you and Alexis. Both of you have such this public facing face on, on the internet. So it's been cool to watch the journey and all the money that you guys have been raising. I mean, you just, what was the huge announcement that you just announced like a few weeks ago? Oh, uh, just raised another $230 million, which Boom. is an outrageous amount of money, but we're supposed to give um, many, many multiples of that back in another five to 10 years. So yeah, yep, that's yep, the- yep. Love it. It's basically just, you know, celebrating the beginning of the race. I love which that. It's always fun. No, and it's it's so exciting. I love everything that you share. Keep making YouTube videos. Don't get burned out. Thanks, Sarah. The world needs you, Gary, um, and all of his Thanks links. for your inspiration. Of course. I'm definitely doing this at least partially because I saw your videos <laughs> I and learned that. a lot from you. I mean, that, so thank you. Yeah, that makes me so happy. That's always just so fun to hear because the, at the end of the day, whenever I get a hate comment, whenever I get anything to do with that, I just remember the people who are doing things in the world, those are the people who say, hey, you helped me with this. And that's all that matters. That's, that's really all that that's matters. That's all we can do. That's all we yep. can do. Well, everyone check out Gary. His links are in the show notes below. Um, thank you so much for this epic conversation. Make sure you're subscribed to That Creative Life on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, YouTube, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And until next time, guys, thank you for listening.